here we go again. It's a painful thing to watch someone you love keep on making the same mistakes when they've made those exact same mistakes before and suffered the consequences. But despite all the warnings, despite how disastrously it's gone before, they do the same thing again, but somehow imagine the result will be different. But it never is. And we see that destructive tendency of human nature demonstrated in Israel in this chapter. Uh, People who lived a long, long time ago and yet human nature doesn't change. Uh, The people of Israel had followed Absalom rather than God's chosen King David. And it had led to defeat, it had led to disappointment and it had led to death. Uh, The death of 20,000 people, no less. But now Absalom, the pretender, is dead. The most obvious thing in the world, as as we saw last week, would be to officially recognise David as king once again. And and some people at this point, they they have recognised David as king, but, but, but some of the people of Israel now snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. They make exactly the same mistake again. Rather than recognising David as king and saying, well, we've sinned in going after Absalom, but from now on we'll follow the man that God has chosen. Instead, they go after another pretender, another pretend king, uh, this time a man called Sheba. Sheba was a Benjaminite. He probably claimed to, to, to represent the old kingdom of Saul. Now this is a long, long time ago. What's the relevance to us, you might ask? Well, its relevance is that this is the human story, which is a story of ongoing rebellion against God and repeated rejection of God's chosen king. And if it seems wearying to look at another example of human rebellion... Well, what must it be like for God to watch us repeatedly fall into the same sins? But there is much we can learn from this. And so once again this evening we have a warning about the futility of rebellion. And yet at a time of tumult and upheaval, we don't simply here have a bad example to avoid. We also have a good example to follow Because we have a woman whose name we don't even know, but whose peace-loving actions save many lives. So that's where we're going this evening. Uh, But we start off with this tragic rebellion. So uh, our first point this evening is simply rebellion. Sometimes you hear of a falling out in a family or in a church. And when you hear about it, you're left thinking... Whoa, is that really what they've fallen out over? Though often, of course, the the issue isn't really the issue, if you know what I mean. Often there have been tensions for a long time, uh, and one side is just looking for an issue to fall out over. Uh, A bit like a footballer running into someone and then falling over to try and, and get them sent off or win a penalty. The commentators, they they watch the replay, they say there's nothing to that. But the player was just looking for the excuse he needed to go down. Just as people can claim the tiniest little thing as a reason for falling out with someone else. Uh, 
And that certainly seems to be the case here at the end of chapter 19. Although the nation of Israel is united as one kingdom at this time, it's still split into different tribes. Way back in chapter 2, Judah had been the first tribe to recognize David as king. Uh, That tension between Judah and the other tribes is still on display here all those years later. Verse 40 tells us that all the people of Israel, or sorry, all the people of Judah, but only half the people of Israel brought the king on his way. So there's this Israel-Judah tension, uh, which is no new thing. But it breaks out into the open in verse 41, when the men of Israel come to David and ask, Why have our brothers stolen you away? In other words, why did you let the tribe of Judah escort you home? It's an over-the-top reaction. Uh, Why does who escorted David home really even matter? It it sounds like the sort of accusation someone makes when they're spoiling for a fight. When they're they're just so, so uh, keyed in to to anything that would look like like it was dishonouring them. Uh, David doesn't answer their question which isn't particularly helpful he just leaves the tribes to argue it out for themselves judah for their part they react angrily in verse 42 they they fight fire with fire rather than water they they point out that david is their close relative israel responds and says we've got 10 shares in the king in other words they have 10 tribes compared to judah's one and if you're adding those up in your head and thinking, are there not 12 tribes? How come you have, you have 10 tribes of Israel and one tribe of Judah? Uh, does that not just make 11? Uh, well, the reason is that the, the, the Levites, they didn't have a particular uh, portion of land, but they were spread throughout the other tribes. Israel, they, they, the next rung in their argument is that they were the first to speak about bringing the king back. Uh, and the chapter ends ominously, not with any resolution of the tension, but simply telling us that the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. So it's not that one side backs down, it's just that one side were fiercer uh, than the other, or even more unrestrained. And so the stage is set for someone to come along and exploit those tensions. You might think, well, it's good at the end of the chapter. We've sort of survived this. There's been no blow-up. But if those tensions are just left you know, in a family, a church, it's not going to take much for someone to come along and exploit them. And that's exactly what Sheba does. Sheba's rebellion is very different from Absalom's in many ways. Remember how Absalom had planned his rebellion for years He'd carefully set the groundwork for it. Absalom was a planner. He was a strategist. Whereas Sheba is an opportunist. He can see the tensions. The fault lines are clear. He can see that Israel are just waiting for a leader to bring them up against Judah and David. And so Sheba tries to exploit those tensions for his own benefit. So he blows the trumpet and says, We have no portion in David. We have no inheritance in the sons of Jesse. 
every man to his tents, O Israel. So there are big differences between Sheba's rebellion and Absalom's. But at the heart of it, they're both the same. Uh, Absalom and Sheba both want to make themselves king instead of submitting to the king that God has chosen. And they both convince many people to follow them. Sheba could have used, uh, and maybe he did, legitimate sounding excuses for what he was doing. He could have said, well, the people of Judah were saying nasty things to us. Uh, And that's true. He could have said David is showing favoritism to people. David is overlooking the the sin of people. He's not ruling the way a king should rule. And again, that's true. But none of those things alter Sheba's crime. Rebelling against God's anointed king and so rebelling against God himself. There are people that we know and love who will give us all sorts of reasons for giving up on church and Christianity. Pointing out flaws in the church, flaws in the minister and and everything they point out could be completely true. But none of it justifies their actions. None of it justifies them sitting at home on a Sunday. None of it justifies them walking away from the faith. In the final analysis, Sheba, like Absalom, rebelled against God. David, the true king, he certainly doesn't cover himself in glory. And yet he was the one God had chosen. And the people following uh, their second rival king in quick succession uh, picture the heart of the unbeliever. Constantly trying to set up another king in place of Jesus Christ. It, It was John Calvin who said that the human heart is a perpetual factory of idols. You would think that when one idol was destroyed, we would turn to the true God instead. But rather we simply just set up another idol in its place. One idol disappoints us. And then we do the same thing again, just hoping for a different result. And so the men of Israel who follow Sheba, they picture unbelievers looking for the next thing and the next thing and the next thing to try and bring them fulfillment and make them happy. But just like the Absaloms and the Shebas, anything that we try and put in place of Jesus Christ will only ever disappoint. Maybe this time it will make me happy. But it won't. Putting idols in the place of Jesus will only bring disappointment and ultimately death. And even for the Christian, we have in this chapter a sad reminder of the impact that our sin might have. In verse 3, David comes to his house at Jerusalem. It should have been a glorious moment, the the return of the king. David had said back in chapter 15, if I find favour in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back. And now God has brought him back. But it's not quite a return to how things were before his sin with Bathsheba. On the national level, there are clear tensions. 
which in the days of David's son Solomon will become even clearer when the nation fractures irreversibly into Israel and Judah. And it's all part of the impact of David's sin. We also see the personal toll of sin in verse 3, particularly those who suffer because of the sin of others. David's concubines, they suffer. They suffer firstly because David has ignored God's picture of one man and one woman for life. And that never goes well in the Bible. We see people with with multiple wives, with with concubines, it always goes bad. So even the very existence of, of concubines is against God's pattern. But now, because Absalom has lain with them while David has been in exile, they can have no ongoing relationship with David. David will provide for them, but he won't have a relationship with them. They are, they are shut up until the day of their death, living as if in widowhood. It might be easy just to pass over this, but, but, but these women are, are mentioned in the word of God. And what a terribly sad picture uh, we're given of them. Uh, their hopes and dreams for their lives were brought to a sudden end, and not because of anything they had done is all because of the sin of others. Their hopes and dreams brought to an end because of the sins of others. We've seen this fairly recently with with Tamar back in chapter 13. She was violated and she was left asking the question, where can I carry my shame? Amnon sinned and Tamar suffered. Here, David sinned and these women suffered. Both cases, we have women suffering not because of their own sin, but because of sins committed against them. Some Christians, as someone once put it, have had their lives turned to grey because of the sins of others. Their life has taken a turn they they would never have chosen as the direct result of the sin of someone else. Perhaps there are even some like that among us tonight. If that is you tonight, I can't answer the, the why question. But I can remind you that you're not alone. That there are those in God's words whose lives turned grey because of the sin of others. Even though they had, they had done nothing to deserve it. But I can also point you to, to the one we sang about in Psalm 147. Who tells us that he heals the broken hearted and binds up their wounds. And also to the one who promises one day to wipe away every tear from your eyes. That day is coming. That day is coming. One day he will wipe away every tear from your eyes. So firstly tonight we have rebellion. Rebellion against God never offers what it promises. It brings misery to us. 
and it brings misery to others. But thank God that this isn't how the chapter ends. So having seen firstly rebellion, we see secondly peace. Secondly, peace. Amidst all the chaos and strife, there is one person who stands out in this chapter. Someone who, when those around her are losing their heads, is in her own words peaceful or peaceable and faithful in Israel. We're not told her name. Simply in verse 16 that she is a wise woman from the city. Uh, a city called Abel. Boys and girls, you, you know uh, that Adam and Eve's two sons, their first two sons, were called Cain and Abel. Well, here we have a city called Abel. And this city is under siege. Did you know, boys and girls, that the city that I grew up in, the city that I went to school in, 300 years ago, it was under siege. Uh, a siege is when you have an army outside a city uh, and the city has walls around it so the, the army can't get in. But it also means that no one can get out. It means, it means food can't get in either. Uh, and the army on the outside, they might sit and wait until, until people are, are starving in the city because, because they can't get any food. Or they, they, might, they might try and bash down the walls to get into the city. So, so that's a siege. Uh, and because no food can get in, people just have to eat whatever they can find. Uh, so whenever my, my friend Kyle was here uh, back in January, we, we went to a, mu- a museum about the siege. Uh, and and this, is, this is what, what food they were selling during the siege. Uh, you could buy horse meat. Uh, that, that was the, the, the best thing you could buy. Uh, they were also selling dogs' heads divided up into quarters. Uh, or, or dogs divided up into quarters. Dogs' heads, cats, rats and mice. All for people to eat. Because if you're in a siege, things start to get desperate. Uh, and the people were getting desperate in this city of Abel. But why, why was Abel under siege? Uh, well, let's rewind a, a little bit. Uh, and in short, it's under siege because this is where uh, this rebel king Sheba has ended up. David, you might remember from last week, had appointed Amasa as his army commander. Amasa, who had previously been Absalom's army commander, but now that he's on David's side, Amasa feels his first big test. He, he dilly-dallies, he, he hesitates, uh, he takes too long to do something, which, which I'm sure none of you boys and girls w- would do. Uh, some have suggested that, that he went out to try and gather uh, men from Judah as David commanded, but they didn't trust him. After all, he used to work for Absalom. Uh, but whatever the reason, uh, Amasa doesn't do what he's meant to do fast enough. And David gives control of the army over to Abishai. Now, now I know these names can get a bit confusing. Uh, not that long ago we had Absalom and Amnon. Uh, and now we have Amasa and Abishai. Well, how, how can we remember the difference? Well, well Amasa and Abishai, they, they were both related to Joab. Uh, Joab is David's old army commander who David had stripped of that role after Joab had ignored David's instructions and killed Absalom. And so Amasa, who, who was 
Absalom's army commander, he's a distant relative of Joab, but Abishai is Joab's brother. And when, when Amasa doesn't turn up, David gives control of the army to Abishai, Joab's brother. But, but it soon becomes clear that Joab is, is the one calling the shots once again. And so at the end of verse 10, Joab and Abishai pursue Sheba until, verse 14, Sheba and those who are with him reach the city of Abel. Uh, this is what they've been trying to avoid early on, uh, verse 6. Uh, uh, pursue him lest he get himself to fortified cities and escape from us. So fortified cities, cities with a wall around them. But that's, that's what he does. In, in verse 15, Joab and the men who are with him, uh, Abishai isn't even mentioned now. They besiege Sheba. And they're in the process of trying to batter down the wall. When a, when a female voice pierces the air, this woman asks for Joab. She introduces herself as one, uh, one who is peaceable and faithful in Israel. What a great thing, by the way, to know that in the midst of all this tumult and rebellion, there were those who were peaceable and faithful in Israel. And wouldn't it be a great thing if that could be said about us? That we were among those who were peaceable and faithful. Because it's possible to be on the right side, but not be peaceable and faithful. Do we see that with Joab? Joab exclaims in verse 20, Far be it from me that I should swallow up or destroy. I'm not the sort of man who swallows up or destroys, Joab says. And yet what has Joab just done? He's just fresh from murdering Amasa, reaching out and holding Amasa's beard with his right hand to kiss him, but having a sword hidden in his left hand. Amasa is someone who has previously sided with Absalom, uh, as well as being a personal rival to Joab. David had given him Joab's old job after all. Uh, and so without hesitation, hardly even breaking a stride, Joab assassinates him. He, he, he takes him out. Just as back in chapter 3, Joab had murdered Abner in revenge for Abner killing his other brother, Ashael. And though there, there are no consequences in this chapter to what Joab does, don't think it's not serious. It is murder, cold-blooded murder. Yes, nothing is said to him here about what he's done. Yes, at the end of the chapter, in verse 23, he gets his old job back as army commander. Joab is a man who gets things done. You know, yesterday at the football, someone was saying that they liked Donald Trump because he got things done, whether it's build a wall or whatever. He said he would do it and he did it. And Joab is a bit like that. He gets things done, but he's not a saved man. So why does David keep him around? Well, David is in a position of weakness. He's tried to get rid of Joab once and it hasn't worked but later on in 1 Kings 2, 
David will charge Solomon not to let Joab die peacefully because of what he's done. In fact, if you want to turn that up, 1 Kings 2, verses 5 and 6. David says to Solomon, 1 Kings 2, verse 5, Moreover, you also know what Joab, the son of Zeruah, did to me, how he dealt with the two commanders of the armies of Israel, Abner, the son of Ner, and Amasa, the son of Jether, whom he killed, avenging in time of peace for blood that had been shed in war, and putting the blood of war on the belt around his waist and on the sandals on his feet. Act therefore according to your wisdom, but do not let his grey head go down to Sheol in peace. So Joab is on the right side. He is fiercely loyal to David, who is God's anointed king. And yet he lives a life of total rebellion to God himself. The scary thing is that if Joab was alive today, he more likely than not would have moved around in our circles. He would have been part of a reformed conservative church uh, and fiercely loyal to it. He would have been fighting for the same causes that we fight for. Because it's possible to be on the right side. It's possible to fight for the right causes but to do so from the completely wrong motivation. In contrast, look at the wise woman's motivation in verse 19. She says, Why will you swallow up the heritage of the Lord? For her, it's about God's glory. It's not, what are you doing to my city? It's, why will you swallow up the heritage of the Lord? But for Joab, it's about personal revenge. It's about settling scores. It's about making sure he gets his old job back. Yes, at the same time, he's advancing the Lord's cause. But that's not actually what he cares about. You can be on on the right side, but not be among the peaceable and faithful in Israel. You can even be outwardly on the right side and not even be saved. But the wise woman is among the peaceable and faithful in Israel. She reassures Joab that Sheba will be dealt with and soon his head and body are separated and many lives are saved. Being peaceable and faithful for this woman, it didn't mean not taking decisive action. So we've seen tonight rebellion but ultimately peace. And by the end of the chapter, by God's grace, the kingdom is still holding together. That is a a good thing. Despite all the the sin, despite all the tensions, the kingdom is still holding together. Uh, May we pray that in our day. But just as we close, it's very interesting to notice that this is the first of three stories in fairly quick succession in the Bible about women inflicting head wounds women inflicting head wounds the first is judges four there you have a woman called jail who welcomes an enemy sisera into her tent lulls him to sleep and drives a tent peg through his head then in judges nine you have abimelech besieging a tar and a woman inside the tar throws a millstone onto his head and crushes his skull And here we have Sheba's head cut off because of the actions of a woman. 
Interesting that this pattern keeps cropping up. Surely we can't help but hear the echo of the first gospel promise in the Bible. When God, speaking to the serpent, says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. That was a prophecy of what Jesus would do on the cross. His heel would be bruised. Uh, he, he would himself be killed uh, as he tread down on the serpent. Uh, and, and yet as he did it, Jesus, the seed of the woman, would be inflicting a fatal wound on the serpent. And each time in the Bible that a woman inflicts a, a literal head wound on an oppressor, well, surely it's meant to be a little foretaste of the fact that one day the head of our great enemy is going to be crushed. All rebellion against the true king will be at an end and we will know perfect peace forever. Amen. Well, we sing in closing of our head-crushing hope from Psalm 74, Psalm 74, verses 13 to 18, page 164. Psalm 74, verse 13, page 164. The, the heads of great Leviathan you, you crushed with your own hands. In verse 17, there's a prayer to God in the midst of the enemy. That God would remember how the enemy has scoffed. And the God of the Bible is a God who will one day fully and finally defeat all his enemies. And then just notice those two lines at the end of verse 18. Do not forget forever the afflicted ones you love. And think of those concubines living out their lives effectively as widows living out radically different lives than the lives they they thought they would have had, radically different lives than the lives they hoped they would have had, shut away in a house, forgotten by society, but surely not forgotten by God. Forgotten by society, but surely not forgotten by God, because that is the kind of God we have. The tune is Irish 101, verses 13 to the end. We'll stand and sing.